Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Ireland's performance on Saturday both posed and answered some questions. Uh, we're going to go through them, I think, positionally. And we'll start at number 10, where Joey Carberry uh, played his longest stretch in an important Six Nations game. Played about 60-something minutes. Um, and he mixed the good with the bad. He gave away an intercept. He set up a lovely try. He kicked all his kicks. Um, overall, how would you view his performance on the day replacing Johnny Sexton? Given that you've been a critic of his uh, his out half play, and you feel like he's more of a fullback, I think is your stated position. Yeah, and I guess we get more onto the fullback stuff later. I I could see the logic for Carberry moving to Munster in order to get him more experience at ten given the reality of Sexton <coughs> excuse me, Sexton being targeted by opposition, shipping a huge amount of hits um, in what seemed like a very long 20 minutes. He, he, he just seemed to be constantly hit. Um, and it seemed to be Scotland's main tactic for the day. Um, so it all made sense when you see the amount of time that Carberry had. How do I think Carberry played? I think he played like Joey Carberry. Um what I mean by, I think he's a super rugby player. I always like seeing him play. And he's not at the same pitch as an out half as Johnny Sexton is. Now, Johnny Sexton's the best player in the world. Um, but I thought it was notable that Conor Murray took on the ball a bit in the second half. Like, Conor Murray never takes on the ball playing for a Joe Schmidt team. Um, I thought it was notable that when people were giving out about confusion between Murray and Aki, I was thinking in a Schmidt team, the 10 should be looking for that ball. Because in a Schmidt team, everything comes off the 10. The 9 is there just to move it. Um, wrote about that after the 2015 World Cup. Um, and I think that was part of the reason that Murray took it on. Um, Squidge Rugby highlighted the fact that Carberry played the ball out wide. Um, so not only did Carberry set up the try, he also got Rob Carney into spaces out in that third channel, which, um, well, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen for a while from Rob. I haven't seen from like a fullback playing for Ireland. Just making that breakthrough in the 15. I'm sure it's happened because we talk about how good Rob Carney has been at, at beating defenders. So um, I'd like to see him start against the Italians. Yeah, I felt that Joey ran halfway towards that outside channel pretty much all the time when he was passing. When I, when I rewatched it there, <clears throat> um, firstly, a, a, a classic curate's egg of a, of a performance. You know, some very poor parts, some very good parts. The thing about a curate's egg is, the curate is obviously asked, how's your egg? And he goes, oh, you know, if, if, it, if, if the egg is... is Rotten in parts, it's fucking rotten. 
you know. So I, 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 I actually, apart from Carby's run up the middle, which was really good, I thought he was poor. Um, <laughs> and I think that there's, uh, there's a really significant difference in uh, in ability and control between him and Sexton, and maybe you know that is so obvious that I shouldn't shouldn't say it. But uh, like I, I was looking at him and I was like, oh, we we occasionally have nice attacking shape because you know the ball is going a little bit wider because Scotland don't have a fucking game plan anymore because the game plan is to smash Sexton. And um, you know, I, I I wasn't hugely impressed. Uh, like this is Carberry's, I think, did we say, seven, was that his 17th game? 18th international. Now he hasn't started all of those by any means, um, but you know he's he's had a lot of exposure, and I sort of expected more control. I expected more, more variety as well. I don't think I think he had something like two kicks in open play in an hour. Um, His two kicks apparently were a grubber when the whistle or we had an advantage penalty advantage yeah, that led to nothing and a kick off the pitch for the end of the first yeah. half. Uh, so I think, you know, when you see the control that Owen Farrell put on the game, for example, both against uh, Ireland and against France through kicking and just through having a wide variety of options, like there's there's a long way to go for uh, Carberry. That said, he, he came on and rescued the game, so you're not to completely pillory the chap. I just think that we got into a conversation after the England match with uh, someone we met, you know, leaving the stadium who, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, made the point that, um, oh, you know, like the form halfbacks are Cooney and Carberry. I think, you know, oh, should have started them, should have reward form. And you're sort of left looking at your feet, kind of going, yeah, 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 look, maybe we'll catch you later. Um, <laughs> are you suggesting dropping Johnny Sexton and Conor Murray for the match against England? Um, like, the world player of the year and arguably... Our least replaceable player. Yeah, our best ever scrum half by a long Our best stretch. ever scrum half, because I don't think we should do that. And uh, I don't really know you well enough or want to engage in this conversation. So, um, <clears throat> look over there. <laughs> yeah, look, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, Jesus, like it wasn't a complete bust at all. And um, I think you're back to the same sort of observations that people made about Madigan is that probably the rest of his team aren't sure what he's going to do. So I think with Joe Schmidt, and we're not the only ones to say it, like Joe Schmidt is an absolute control freak of a coach. Everything that you can control, he goes out of his way to make sure that everyone knows their job and everyone controls it. And Johnny Sexton is the the best example of that on a pitch of a guy who's so dedicated to... Like guys must love playing for Sexton. I remember seeing Aaron Rodgers just get planted pass after pass after pass because he held on to the ball so long playing for the Packers uh, in the year they won the Super Bowl. Mm. And I was there thinking, God, guys must love, guys on the other side of the ball for the pack must love playing in the same team as Rodgers because he just goes out of his, like he, he's no fear about getting hit. Um, and Sexton certainly has that. I, you know, it's not that other out halves don't, but Sexton certainly has it, and I think it's a massive plus for him. And I think everyone knows what they're doing. And I think with Madigan, people were just like, I, "I'm not, 
that was this isn't in the plan. Yeah. It looks good for you, but like I'm in the wrong place. Yeah. Um and I think like I think there was parts of Madigan's game in which he really took to Joe Schmidt's coaching. I remember I've talked about it a couple of times when we were he came on for Sexton late in the first uh championship win, twenty fourteen, and we were playing keep ball and Madigan ran about five different shapes for about ten times in a row so we could keep the ball seemingly trying to do different stuff while actually we were just trying to keep the ball in the same place and retain possession. But it was scrum half drags, pops into first center, fake loops and that sort of stuff. And all the time the forwards or the inside back or the blindside winger was coming back to just directly beside where the last rock was. So it didn't look like we were picking and jamming and falling over the ball, which the refs were very hard on back then. Not so much in the recent games. But uh, it was clear that Schmidt had drilled that into him. This is what we're going to do. But then the other times when Madigan decided to go Mads, you know, nobody else knew what was going on. Okay, uh, bear in mind the thing you said first about uh, Joe Schmidt being a control freak. Why was he in the cafe forcing Joey, forcing, forcing Joey to <laughs> join Munster and play number 10 all season? Why, why did he think that was his best option? rather than keep Joey as a second playmaker or utility back or whatever, when he could have picked a more uh, steady Eddie number 10 like Ross Byrne? Well, I don't think Ross Byrne was a second choice. So a second choice is playing in France for Perpignan because his contract was rescinded. Is that the correct word? Yeah. Uh, torn, torn up. Torn up, torn voided. Up, voided by the IRFU. So... Paddy Jackson was the guy who played the three tests and probably a little bit before Joey. But in I don't South think Africa. In South Africa, sorry, yeah. In South Africa when, when Sexton was available. I don't think it was going to come down to a head-to-head, though, between the two of them. I think had LaFair Jackson not come to pass, that Paddy Jackson would be the second choice. But given that it did and given that Joey Carberry moved after that... Yeah. Um. Do you think it's just a, a case that Joey, or sorry, that the Joe <clears throat> simply realizes that Joey is his most, ta- his second most talented number 10, full stop, regardless of his style of play? Might be his most talented number 10. Like he's a super rugby player. And, but look, I'm, I'm splitting hairs there. Yeah, definitely. Like he, I think he has doubts about Ross Byrne's ability to play at international level, certainly given 2019 as a, as a deadline. Um, and I think you want to get Joey on the pitch, on the plane, um, and out half is a crucial position. Yeah, like there's, like I was bad mouthing Carberry there, <laughs> uh, but like, you could watch the rest of Ross Byrne's career and he'll never make a break like Joey Carberry made for Keith Earls Troy. You could, like, that's, that's not in his portfolio, not, not in Ross Byrne's portfolio. So there's things that uh, Joey Carberry can do and does that Ross Byrne just can't do and they're the harder things to do and I'm as he, as you both you guys know I'm actually have been a Ross Byrne believer and maybe she'd be a believer too since you know since since I saw him playing for like a Leicester school side five six years ago I think that he's a really I think he's probably 
that there's there's elements to what he does to a game, which means that he's going to continue to get better, steadily better. I don't think there's going to be major swings in his um, in his progress. I think it's going to be very incremental and incremental upwards. Um, just to call back to your what I thought was hilarious tall Raj comparison, Ronald Agar couldn't do most of those things that Joey Carby did there no, either. He not, not like he didn't he, like his his balance for one thing wasn't good. I remember Raj had a, a habit of making a half break and falling over when he. Like, that sounds so harsh on Raj, but it, it happened a lot. Like he he tried to do something which he couldn't do. Um, Raj was a very good distributor, uh, and there was also the his. I think his his best year for Ireland was two thousand seven. If you recall, he scored in four out of the five Six Nations games. Scored tries in four out of the five Six Nations games, and you know we played some super rugby in two thousand and seven. But uh, like in terms of uh, like an an out half who was a, a viable solo threat. He, like, as a runner, no, he wasn't. Like, he couldn't do what Carby does. And also, the other thing I was impressed with Carby is his his technical tackling is really... Like, there's a couple of times when Josh Strauss had a good run-up at him, and Carby gets so low. Like, he doesn't knock him backwards. Like, Earl's managed to knock Josh uh, Strauss backwards once on the on the right wing. When yeah, it's a great tackle. It's a superb yeah, tackle. Inner, inner 22. And Earl's and Carby are about the same size, but Carby, while he wasn't getting the offensive tackles off, he was he's dropping his man, like... Like he was shot. <laughs> I think for Raj, and we, we quoted a Paulie piece in one of the blogs about, um, sorry, a Paulie quote in one of the blog pieces about that. It was it was very easy to captain a team with Raj on it because Raj knew just exactly what had to happen at the right time in a match. And I, that's, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to summarize other than that like people talk about control the game but again like like Roger's ability to find space in the backfield his ability to ping it into the corners and like hit it within the five meter tram lines his his awareness of where the fullback was his awareness of where the opposition wingers was where like th- that pitch position that he gave mm. uh so you were saying like his distribution um and his I ability to impose pressure on teams, psychological pressure, the pressure when you're defending within, say, 10 metres of your line, it's really significant in rugby. You know you can't afford to fuck up there. There's more pressure on you. And Rogers able to put the teams he was playing against under that psychological pressure really frequently. And he developed a really strong place-kicking game. So when you're, when you're talking about out-half play, it's, it's pretty notable that you don't have to be a great athlete to do it. Now, Bowden Barrett and, and Dan Carter have re-established, and I, I would say Carter being the preeminent one. So whereas Barrett's a, a tremendous athlete, uh, he hasn't won the World Cup as a starting out half yet, whereas, whereas Carter did. And it was as much a coronation of Carter as anything else. So, uh, you know, obviously like a few of them got their, their second World Cups, whereas Carter missed out, having been injured in 2011. But... Um, it. Carter had lost some of his athleticism. I think it, I think it's fair to say well, compared agreed, to what yeah. he had in in. Oh, I mean, pick pick one of the two thousand and five. Yeah, his famous um, game. But you know, between two thousand and five, two thousand and ten, arguably. But 
his his variety in play and his ability to vary up what he was going to do, um, he was just non-pareil. Okay, well, Jeez. we're going we're going off topic there. That's but the phrase I wanted to hear. We're going off topic there. We're going off topic there. But my point was more: if you're going to com- if you're going to be critical of not knowing what an out half's doing, um, in in a team that is coached by a control freak that plays a quite structured, very structured game. Yeah. How come we've ended up uh, choosing the mercurial non-kicking game of Joey Carberry over a more routine out half like, for example, Ross Byrne or even John Cooney who's performed admirably in that position? Well, I, don't, I don't think Cooney's going to be in that conversation as a starting out half. Um, but it is a very good question. I think that it comes down to um, it, it sounds sort of naive or sounds like a blasé way maybe even of answering but I think it comes down to talent uh, just as simple as that there's that he Joe Schmidt I, I, I like I like Joe Schmidt so much that I wouldn't call him a control freak although maybe he is but I think that he, he sees a player and he goes, this is how I can make him better. So uh, to my eyes, he sees Joey Carberry and he says, I could, this guy has so much talent, I can turn him into uh, the best out half in the world. Okay, an opportune time to give him some lessons in that. He should start the next two Irish games against Italy, who I th- the way is going to be tougher than France at home. Discuss. No, I don't think so. Um <laughs> Both sides have looked poor, um, but France have better players than Italy. I didn't mean to start a conversation on the relative merits of two poor teams. Should Joey Carby play the next two games for Ireland from 10? Um, n- uh, no, I really ha- only had him down in my... Uh, in my head, as as playing against um, as playing against Italy, but what what I have thought has not proven. Uh, my mind melded with what Joe Schmidt has, has failed. <laughs> um, I because I thought he'd give. I thought and may, and maybe he would have, but I don't think he would have. I thought he was going to give Henshaw a second chance at at fullback against uh, Scotland. Now, obviously, that didn't happen, and uh, Robert Carney came in and had a super game. Uh, so I thought that it would be. Uh, Italy would be the game in which Carney started at 15 and Carberry started at 10 so you'd have solidity at full back and you'd have the raw effervescence of youth etc at 10 um, but it hasn't gone that way so you know as it turned out Carberry's played most of the Scottish game with with Carney um, I think it's I think you raise a really valid question though maybe it is better and, and you told me why you were going to ask that very leading question with regards to our uh, the makeup of our World Cup group, yeah, I, I've been uh, considering the length of time between the games and the order in which our games come in, purely because I've been organising hotels and thinking about them in a very uh, having to organise myself way. Uh, our second two group games are against Russia and Samoa, and Johnny Sexton shouldn't be in the squad for either of those games, in my opinion. Mm. And 
<clears throat> if he were to suffer some kind of injury where you thought he'd be fit for the potential quarterfinal that we may or may not be in, um, you would obviously leave him in the squad. But if we were bringing in a third man to replace him if he got injured against Japan or Scotland and he wasn't going to be fit for a quarterfinal, they'd have plenty of time to acclimatize for a potential mm-hmm. quarterfinal. Basically, I don't know, my whole thing was I don't see an out half with no kicking game uh, winning a quarterfinal in the World Cup, <laughs> particularly one that is likely to be against South Africa. I think that you have to have Sexton in the squad for pretty much every match. If you're going to bring two, I don't see the point. I see the point in wrapping guys in cotton wool, but I don't as well. Um, I think that if you're a player, you want <coughs> sorry, you just you want to be on the pitch. Or you want to be involved in match day squads. Like if you're going over there with a big gap in between not just games, but in like two whole games after the Japanese match and you're you're just training, like you go nuts. You need the competitive outlet. So I think it's a risk that we have to run. Plenty to do and see in Japan all the same. <laughs> True that. I don't know. Um, yeah. Let's pivot from the number 10 position uh, to the number 15 position where some questions were definitely answered. He hasn't gone away. Robert Kearney uh, was really, really, really great at fullback. um, Did all the things he did well. Um, He did all the things he did well. He did all the things he does well, well in that game. Uh, What it doesn't answer is the question of who's our second choice fullback. But let's talk about Rob Carney first. Yeah, I, I heard this very interesting um, piece of information this morning that uh, Carney was the third player in Six Nations history to beat 100 defenders. The first being Brian O'Driscoll, second being George North. Um, so that would put him in this, in this category where he's routinely uh, characterized as having no... No attacking ability, really. But that would put him ahead of players like Shane Williams, Tommy Bow, Fofana, uh, Vincent Clerk, Gareth Tom, like great, like uh, great attacking players in the Northern Hemisphere. So I think that people, because Carney's been around for such a long time, you know, this is his. I think he debuted against Argentina summer tour 2007 before the World Cup. Maybe that was 2006. I can't remember. Um, so he's been in the, around the international team for 12 years. And, you know, for the last four or five, people have wanted to get rid of him. Sometimes his form hasn't been great, but I think it's rarely been as poor as his detractors have made it out to be. Uh he has a reputation really that's as a big game player that was really especially in his in the sort of later years established when he Joe Schmidt apparently told him before the the win against the All Blacks in uh, November fifth, twenty sixteen, that he needed a big game. And he went out and delivered a big game. And you know, he I suppose he didn't need a big game on the back of Henshaw's performance um against England, but he did go out and deliver a big game against Scotland. Like Kearney is a lot stronger than people think or choose to think because, you know, he has a huge handoff and uh, 
he's still got a bit of gas. No, <laughs> he won't pass to anybody either. He doesn't score any tries. I think that's the... <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, ever. <laughs> I'm one of the people uh, calling for his head. and Beautiful head. It, it's hard to get past that. I think that the beating defenders is a function of... He does a few things really well. Um, we're talking about Agara, rhapsodizing about Agara, and oh, Jesus, when Agara was playing, I wouldn't have been his biggest fan. I would have had, I would have seen him having a number of deficiencies in the same way that I see Rob Carney having a number of deficiencies. But uh, there's, there's contradictions here because I think that I think I think that players should concentrate in one position. I think Jordy Murphy, for example, going to Ulster is a great move for him, even though he hasn't been involved in the Six Nations squads, the match day squads at all, because he's playing one position and it's showcasing his his best rugby. Um, I think that's what Carney's done. Plus, plus he's got talent, so, you know, sort of to address the Ross Byrne question, like, you, you need a certain level of athletic ability and it's something that we referenced um, after the England match with Robbie Henshaw that it's humbling watching it because you think, oh, sure, anybody... You know, if you spend 10,000 hours, anybody could stand in and play international rugby. Mm. And nah, they couldn't. Like, no. It doesn't matter how many hours you spend at it. Like, if, you, if you're not athletic enough at the at the outset, it's it's going to prove really, really difficult. Thomas Hauser wrote about that before, Malcolm Gladwell. We both read the same book about Muhammad Ali. Uh, and Hauser was talking about that, about the, the, the delusion that anybody who's you know, played sports as if I had just tried harder when I was younger, if I just spent this time doing this and that, you know, I could have been as good as that guy. And Martin Johnson addressed it in his own autobiography when he was saying about people who would, you know, walk over broken glass to play for England. And he just said, well, just do it then, you know, train really hard and do that. And that was his, but Martin Johnson... Muhammad Ali, Rob Carney, the big three, as I like to call them. <laughs> um, they have loads of talent. Like Rob Carney is a super talented player. When Rob Carney started playing for Lancer as a 19 and 20-year-old, his first season he scored like nine tries. That was the season that that Munster beat Lancer in the Heineken Cup semi-final, 2005-06. Like he's been around for a long time. And that's one of the things, this is something which I you know, harp on about. Fans just get Fans get bored of players unless they're like super duper once in a lifetime players like Draco or Paul O'Connell. Fans just sort of get, oh, I'm sick of seeing Tommy Bow or I'm sick of seeing Darcy or I'm, you know, sick of seeing John Hayes. Fans get bored of them, you know, and. It's just because, you know, there's always going to be a guy coming up who you think is good. Maybe he could be better, but until he is better, the guy that's better is better. Well, I, I disagree because I thought that Schmidt had bottled it when he picked, uh, when he picked Henshaw at centre. I'd rather that he'd pick Farrell and would have started Henshaw at fullback. I wanted to see, I sort of, I, like, I take the view that Carney's going to the World Cup. It, he never picked Henshaw at centre. He was injured. He did. No, he didn't. Have, the, the first announcement was Farrell at 13. I thought the leak was that Henshaw had to pull out. 
I think you're right, Andy. Yeah. The, the, the leak was that Henshaw had to pull it, and Henshaw yeah. had been moved from fullback. So maybe he didn't announce the team, but they, they leaked the team or whatever. Like all the journals know the team. Mm-hmm. The morning okay. the morning before it's picked, the morning before it's announced, so they can make copy. And I'm. Well, it leads us to our, our question of who plays 15 against Italy in the very short term. Who's our actual replacement for him in the long term? And I mean, replacement is in like who would come off the bench or who who would yeah, play if question. he was injured. Good question. I don't know. Which we which were none the wiser of after two games of this tournament. Yeah, I don't think there is any long term in this tournament. There's, it's become just a build up for the World Cup, um, unless. Unless you're England or Wales, this this is the sort of the it's yeah. not it's not a vintage six not nations. Not a vintage six nations. You know, <laughs> once and we could still win it if, if Wales beat England. Well, it, it's exceedingly difficult for us to win it given England's points difference and try scoring ability. So, but if England lose Italy, <laughs> um, so it's it, it just makes sense to me to play. Um, but I'm not in Joe Schmidt. Sorry, it just makes sense to me for Henshaw to play at fullback. It would have made sense, and I would have liked to see Farrell. And then Rob Carney goes out and proves me wrong. I'm not in Joe Schmidt's position where if Ireland lose two in a row, everybody wonders why didn't he? Why did he pick Henshaw? Given it was such a disaster, it wasn't a disaster against England, but given that he's he's not the same player at fullback that he is at centre. Mm. Um, yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to. Take we don't have to deal with the pressure yeah. of it. So. Yeah, for all for all that Rob Carney did well, he he did much better when Joey Carberry was on the pitch rather than Johnny Sexton. Um, That's true. Yeah, he as you say, we're still no closer to knowing who's going to play at fullback. Should Rob Carney be injured in the World Cup? One of the things I thought. Now, just sorry, I'm going to just interrupt you quite rudely. Uh, one of the things I thought, and I, I mentioned to you beforehand, was we were missing a lot of players there in similar positions as to the uh, Argentina quarterfinal and that we were down, you know, certainly one centre, maybe two, you could argue, in, in losing ring rows and then Henshaw, uh, Sexton going off very early after the first quarter, down one first choice back row in Stander, down one first choice second row in uh, Toner. And there's other players as well, you know, sort of easy to forget that Dan Levy was the Grand Slam win an open side flanker last year again not available for selection this time out Hendo was there not available for selection Ty Byrne wasn't there last year but has had a blinding couple of clubs arguably the form player in Ireland yeah not there Um, so you know you've got a lot of quality players missing and this is one of the things which I thought marked out Joe Schmidt in 2015, Joe Schmidt's sides in 2015. I remember when we didn't have, like under Eddie O'Sullivan, if we didn't have Draco or Paul O'Connor, we were still going, oh, we're fucked. And then we went into a 2015 quarterfinal against Argentina where we didn't have Sean O'Brien, Paul O'Connell, Johnny Sexton, Jared Payne, Peter O'Mahony. And we're, we were thinking, 50-50 game. You know, he, Joe Schmidt has changed Irish rugby so much in terms of strength and depth. And when we had, we, you know, you're looking at Quinru starting in the Six Nations, uh, and Quinru had like a decent game, and a certainly very effective game in both, like of the sort of standard set pieces, aside from the, the restarts. They had super efforts as a tight head scrubber to demolish them. Uh, apparently called the line-outs well, 
So, but like, I never thought I'd see. I actually didn't think I'd ever see Quinnery starting a Six Nations game. No, um, bar, bar maybe an Italian one. I think another feature of Joe Schmidt's coaching that at the weekend is that we were, you know, discussing about, or we were in a discussion rather than we were saying it, that Ireland should target Leila and smash him as often as possible, hit him late, come through and things. Um, and, we, and we didn't do it at all. And you could see it happen to Sexton in the first 20 minutes. And I was kind of shaking my head going, oh man, like why aren't we applying the same pressure mm. to Laidlaw? But then Sexton went off and at the same time, Scotland had lost Stuart Hogg. And you're sort of looking at Scotland just make mistake after mistake and thinking to yourself, they don't know what they're doing. Like their whole focus on that match was smashing Sexton. And at some stage, getting the ball to Hogg. Like that, being basic about it, Hogg is going to get us out of trouble or he's going to, you know, make up a few magic moments. And even like Kinghorn came on and like beat defenders yeah, left, right and centre. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that like it was a massive step down, but he's not like the quintessential player of the tournament, much to your chagrin, Stuart Hogg. Um, whereas Schmidt's teams don't get distracted with that at all. And it proved... Proved that he's right yet again. Um, and, you know, you made the point that Ireland ran at uh, Finn Russell, ran at, um, ran at Laidlaw. In the second half, I ran at Laidlaw a lot more. Yeah. Killer had a, go- a couple of goes at him. Um, and also the thing you said, I, I think is a really good point, is that Scotland made mistakes and led us into the game in a way that the English didn't at all. You know, I, I had a brief rewatch of it. And, you know, obviously the uh, Tommy Seymour pass for Conor Murray's try was a huge, glaring error. You know, within a couple of minutes of that, they threw a line out over the top, which Rory Best gathered without a Scottish hand being on it. A couple of minutes of that, on 14 minutes now, Sexton had an, uh, an intercept off Laidlaw's characteristically slow pass. Like, that guy has the slowest pass of an international scrum half I've seen the pro era. Mm. Um. And then you had four minutes after that, so still before the 20-minute mark, you had Finn Russell deciding to tap and go from a five-meter penalty. Five I, think that was, I think that was a play, though. Do you think so? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. We looked well aware of that. It was really good coaching, and that was another symbol of, uh, another example rather than a symbol, maybe both, of Joe Schmidt's coaching in that like, nobody was, had their back to the play in Ireland. Yeah. And, and all of our <laughs> none of the Irish players did. And they raced off the line, raced off the line the next time, and the third time I think, man, he caught his made a good tackle and got his yeah, head on the he, ball. He came rushed, he, he flew up. You know, and then two minutes after, or maybe sorry, four minutes after about twenty-two minute mark, when the Scots had that nice breakout, they ended up touching the ball down in goal with the forward pass in the build up. So they were they had the ball, but they were making mistakes in the way that like as you were saying, you know. They let us into the or they let us into the game in a way that England didn't. Yeah. Uh, there's other things as well to talk about apart from a, a couple of positions, you know, in terms of uh, players who played particularly well. Uh, Tyke Furlong's ability, uh, both his quick feet, his ability to turn his shoulders and get skinny, as they say in in American football, to just to just to turn his shoulders and his hips and to shrug off a character to have the ball in one hand and offer the, the option of an offload was super impressive. 
James Ryan's work rate, once again, absolutely outstanding. You know, staying on the pitch the full 80 minutes, switching over to scrummage on the tight end side, admittedly, like, he was shattered. You could see him at the end of it there. Um, Sean O'Brien coming back in after, on the basis of, you know, he played a bit of number eight against Wasps for Leinster and uh, came in and did a, a really good job. Jack Conan's tackle count in the um, in the last three minutes or the three of the last four minutes in the first half. I think he made six tackles in, in three minutes there. Um, and then, as we mentioned before, Keith Earls making... Earls didn't have his, his best game, but he made a fucking absolute monster of a hit on Josh Strauss, who's more or less twice his size. Hit him, you know, five metres away from the Irish line, drove him backwards and almost turned over the ball. Given all those good individual performances, what was it about the performance then that made it seem sloppy and somewhat a little bit underwhelming? I think the nerve-wracking element of playing in Murrayfield, Ireland being in the unfamiliar position now of having lost the previous match, that you <clears throat> very quickly get accustomed to Ireland winning and expect them to win. And then all, just all the ghosts of, of Scotland past come around to haunt you, particularly missing all the players that we've listed out, uh, Sexton going off. Um, I think they're all the reasons. Yeah, you know, we, we looked under pressure for the start of the game. Then we quickly went 12-3 ahead. Give away an intercept try, it's 12 to 10, you go, oh. And, you know, we weren't able to pull away there, we weren't able to edge us back. Like, this is a, you know, it's a decent Scottish team. They haven't lost a lot of games in Murrayfield. It was a bigger accomplishment than probably we're giving it credit for. Uh, but it seemed when we had lost our last match, and been hammered in our last match, and been hammered at home, that a huge amount of confidence in the Irish rugby, the wider Irish rugby um network fraternity sorority people who follow Irish rugby just evaporated very quickly you know when Sexton and Murray aren't playing well Sexton and Murray didn't play well against England um Ireland's just not as good a team as we were in 2018 well let's wrap up the Ireland chat by saying what do you expect if anything from the selection against Italy standouts like for example how are we going to get Jordan Larmer into the team? Do we need to? Well, let's finish on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, so what do I expect? Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, this has been constant. I um, I would like to see Henshaw play fullback again for the reason that we need to know who is going to be the second choice. Um fullback or who who else can play fullback mm -hmm. should Carney be injured in the World Cup I think I'd like to see Ty Byrne play a match yeah. I don't know if he's going to be fit by that stage other than that they're, they're my two yeah I think that I'd like to see John Cooney get a bit of game time and I was saying a bit of game time I'd like to see John Cooney start at the same stage Conor Murray needs rugby um, should I'm not sure the exact order of the matches if but like the teams are going to be announced before Wales play England. So 
we could theoretically be in with the chance of winning the Six Nations should Wales beat England and we can go to Wales on the last day. Realistically, I think England are going to win the Six Nations even if they lose to Wales. Well, Wales could win a Grand Slam actually if they lose to Wales. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to that mm. match. I think that... Um, I uh, That Andrew Conway, even though he's he was missed, a, missed the... Um, Scottish squad with through injury, I think he's more likely to get a run ahead of Jordan Larmer as a direct replacement for Earls. There's a like for like. I think they're so similar at the moment. And I think that's that's a sort of interesting thing to think about. Um I think that clearly Carberry's gonna start. I don't think he's going to drop Rory Best, but I'd like to see Sean Cronin get more than you know eight and a half minutes in a game. It's just, it's been the one element of Joe Schmidt's selection which I would have, uh, which I just don't dis- I don't agree with. I think that Cronin can offer you an awful lot more than fucking garbage time minutes. Um, and then I'd love to see Ty Byrne on the pitch if he's if he's fit. Um, so they're the big ones for me. Conan's going to start again at eight because Sanders' face still isn't mended. Uh, I don't think Levy's going to be back in time to make any sort of play to get into the squad. And there's like there's, you can change things, but you don't need to change absolutely everything just for the sake of change. Well, yeah, I think we all agree on we'd love to see Tyke Burns' blue scrum cap against the Italians. Someone needs to stop him. The cloud didn't like that. <whistles> Referee blows for half time. Not only have England got Declan Rice, but they've got a revolutionary game plan that's going to win in the World Cup. It's called kicking the ball really well. Kicking the ball and running into people. My favourite things about rugby. Kick and clap. Tell me all about it. Kick and clap is the derisive name that Northerners have for soft Southern code. And it came to mind when Farrell kicked the ball into the corner at Twickenham and there was a huge, beery, guttural guffaw and cheer. Brexity guffaw. And I thought to myself, nowhere turns from mausoleum to triumphalism quicker than an English national sporting venue i think that there's a there's a there's a streak i used to think there was a slight streak now i just think there's a complete streak of bipolarism in the english that allows earth uh conquering confidence along with just enormous hubris um to exist side by side and they're often just the same thing um kipling I was going to say arguably the most famous poet. I mean, he's, he's arguably not given the rich tradition of the English language, but um, talking about <laughs> Dryden, Pope, talking about uh, meeting triumph and disaster all the same. Um, and Which just, to one face. So Farrell being from a very, very prominent rugby league family. Um, he's got an Irish name as well. With an Irish name. Who's his dad? Kicking into the corner and all the English clapping and it worked. I, Rattling their jewellery. Oh man, like I, I, I'm sort of surprised that Eddie Jones has unveiled it 
as now in the Six Nations yeah, rather than in the World Cup. I mean, that, that's the that's the thing I'm the most surprised about. I'm also kind of surprised that no one else has thought about it beforehand. In a way, though, I'm not surprised that Eddie Jones has thought about it. Like, Eddie Jones is a hard-working, hard, annoying little nuggety bastard. And he's been around coaching rugby teams forever. And he's mad about the game. And he's probably long enough in the tooth and he's probably had enough triumph and disaster in his time that he's... He's almost on a free hit here with the English team. Now, he's not on a free hit. It's costing more than half a million sterling for the RFU to get this free hit, but per annum. Um, but like from, from a tactical point of view, it's it's superb. Like From a cultural point of view, I think that what Hansen, or maybe Henry, really would be the dominant figure here, for did with the All Blacks, and Hansen has continued on. Um but that's a much longer term, slow burn and proven successful mm. methodology. But I, I don't think, I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything equivalent to what Eddie Jones has done. You've to always been the way. a fan of Eddie Jones. I remember when, um, they were going back to post, I know one of your touchdowns always been Rod McQueen. But the the style that the Brumbies played, and Eddie Jones was a you know a big factor in that, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. He was certainly the successor to Rob McQueen. I think he was. I think he was the assistant coach mm. to Rob McQueen. He's he's from the Randwick tradition. He's but that idea of having eight channels across the pitch and just calling moves that would target each of the channels and like attacking the same spot again and again and again and then moving it, but but consciously knowing what you're doing that idea of manipulating space I think you know you go back to the Randwick idea and you go about Ella about like you know I touched the ball once I touched the ball twice I touched the ball three times you know yeah whatever team scores I score all that sort of stuff like there's for as pugnacious and as sledging and as an unpleasant a character as Eddie Jones comes across like he's also from that very rich vein of what I will like Aussie intellectualism in terms of rugby, that is Randwick. Um, and like I said, I'm just surprised that no one else has thought it. They've only played two matches and they played against an Ireland team that didn't have like a proper fullback. They played against a French team that was trying to hide Morgan Parra. So maybe it isn't all that great. And maybe Wales will find it you know maybe Wales will stick out a leg and block a kick through Liam Williams will score one in the counter-attack and it'll be proven to be a bit more earthbound and normal but at the moment it looks an extremely clever way to play against a rush defense mm. so I think everyone and I'd say but certainly I would be among them would complain about teams are offside that there's no space in the game anymore and there is space so Eddie Jones went over with Pep Guardiola um, when Guardiola was in Bayern Munich and Jones is in Japan to talk about the exploitation of space. And I think the thing that came out of that uh, from Jones' perspective, like the most high-profile thing was just how hard Guardiola worked his players, like how much the Bayern players were dripping in sweat. And Jones talked about upping the intensity of his, of his sessions with Japan and then consequently with England. And you look at the the injury count, um, but there's there's also 
parallels in in American football. Yeah, as 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 you were saying there, if if somebody's rushing up, they're leaving the space behind them. They can't be in two places at once. You know, uh, American football used to be played, and college football used to be called, or used to be characterized as three yards in a cloud of dust. Uh, and one of the first teams to change that was uh, John Madden's NFL or his uh, Oakland Raiders, Raiders uh, with the vertical passing game in which, you know, instead of the, you have a play action pass and you'd say, oh, we're going to run up the gut. No, these lads are going to close. We're going to go. We're going to go deep. Now, the difference between rugby and American football is obviously the forward pass. That's the key difference ahead of anything to do with helmets or stoppages in place. The fact that you can actually throw the ball forward somebody who is in, in rugby would be offside. Um, but that's, that is space exploitation. This is one of the, one of the, it's become unfashionable. Kicking became unfashionable years ago, you know. Uh, also running into people became unfashionable years ago. Those are the two things that England are doing incredibly well. Running into people and kicking the ball. I think it's interesting that you brought up Guardiola because him and him and Jones are both massive pricks also. <laughs> <laughs> but there's other things about this. Um, you know, we were talking um, off mic when all our best stuff happens off mic. Uh, you mentioned the other, um, the other tsunami of kicking that's happened within the last, you know, 15, 16 years when one side decided to turn up to a tournament and kick the ball all the time. Argentina in yeah. 2007. And they unveiled that game to the best of my knowledge, certainly my memory, um, against France. First game. First game. But and not they, before. Not before. And they just... And I, I watched that match in France in a bar on a Friday night. And... Like, the French obviously expected to beat Argentina and there's a certain there's a certain sort of mindset that if you play the French and they expect to beat you if you can get to 60 65 minutes they're like melt yeah we're not going to beat you this isn't this is not in the plan and Argentina got to that and you could sort of see like or 65 when, seconds if you're England <laughs> <laughs> uh, when the when the when when the kick ah oh, like there was just innumerable kicks went up and they kept on being regathered, and the French are going, oh, crap, not again. Yeah. And do you see a similarity? Because I remember that, I, like, I remember uh, Juan Martin Hernandez announced himself as it's just the most, certainly that year, the most superbly talented rugby player in the world that year. But also Contepomi at 12, Corletto at 15. Like, they had these guys, they had three guys who could kick the ball really well, and then one in Hernandez, the guy who's the most varied kicking game I've ever seen in rugby union. You know, and you you mentioned as well that previously that it's not all just Farrell kicking the ball. So they have a wealth of options. Yeah, so we were talking about the, the amount of players that Ireland were missing. And I, I it's rare that England have uh, a full bill of health, but you could argue that the missing Rob shot, but I think that picking having having Henry Slade and then Elliot Daly at thirteen and fifteen gives them two more kicking options. Now, like um, Ashton put through one of the kicks, mm. so 
there's a difference like when a team is playing with confidence everyone can sort of do it but I certainly think that Slade and, and Daly have proven enough and like Daly pick kicks goals from miles out like from he's, he's he is able to kick the rugby ball Um and they seem, and the fact that Ashton could do it, they seem really aware of it. They seem just so conscious. And look, this happened in rugby league as well a few years ago. That just by the a load of teams get down in the uh, NRL, ten meters away, five meters away, and the little the little kick goes yeah. through. And partly it's the way that the laws are framed, but it's also just that you know that they're going to have thirteen up. You know that they're not going to sweep with anybody. Even if they sweep with anybody, like he's going to get scragged behind the goal line, and that's the best opportunity to play because you you don't like you have to come off the line hard. It's really hard to change your momentum. You put the kick through, um, and guys throwing in little blindside kicks like looking right, kicking left. Um, I won't say it's a staple of the league game, but it's one of the features of the most creative players yeah, in the NRL over the last so decade. Nuanced. That they have this incredible, uh, almost NFL like s- set of plays, which are so precise within you know ten to fifteen meters of the goal line. Obviously, there's two less players, two less defenders to worry about, but it is incredibly nuanced. Uh, and I think w- w- something that you said there is, is you know that the, that rugby league, the numbers in the line. And I think that how you framed it before is that that's what it's exploiting a defensive shape rather than specific players. Would you England's kicking strategy, or do you think that there's no? I think what, what's I, out there, what they're seeing, and they're responding to that. I think that England. I I don't know how much heads up. Eddie Jones had that uh, Henshaw was going to play at fullback for Ireland or that France were going to try to hide Morgan Parra in the backfield. Declan Rice might have told him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, like, they they definitely... They targeted Keith Earls more than Robbie Henshaw, I'd Mm. say. So they knew about that and they probably knew about Parra. They knew that France would want to try to put him out in the sort of, you know, dropping in the back three, Para is a kicking game, and they were just ruthless about going after Para in the first half. So I think some of it is the players, but the fact that they they have three options all the way across the pitch, but they have four options. Ben Young's a very good kicker. Very good. But, sorry, going back to the injury thing, if you go, if they don't have Ben Young's, they go to Danny Kerr. He's not as good a no, kicker. No, they're going to Robson now. The they're going to Robson Wasps. from yeah. Wasps. All right, fair enough. Um... Ford is a good kicker. Is he as good as Farrell? No. He's good enough. He's he's not as good as Farrell though. Um, if they drop Slade, or if they if Slade is unavailable, and if Elliot Daly is unavailable, I don't know if they have the same options. I think it's very difficult to see a midfield of Tuilagi and Teo mm. providing that sort of kick and threat. And, and I don't Jonathan think Joseph wouldn't. I don't think you're going to get it from. As it yeah, turns Anthony Watson might, Mike Brown probably not. No, Alex Good would be the other Alex. big kicking threat at thirteen, but he or sorry, fifteen, but he's just on the outs for like ever. So now you come to the, you know, when we were going through all the injuries that Ireland have and the fact that Ireland were able to beat Scotland, that any team struggles with 
seven or eight guys injured. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that you're surprised that Eddie Jones unveiled his um, new approach or the, the team's new approach uh, ahead of the World Cup. Um, do you think it's a bluff? I mean, I know this is like, can you get inside Eddie Jones's head and think what he thinks? Do you think it's a bluff? Uh, and I'm just bearing in mind the sort of conversations that were had around um, the analysis of the New Zealand's New Zealand's performance in autumn, where there was some idea that they were kind of recalibrating themselves, learning to play, how to drop goals, to, <laughs> to take drop goals to play a slightly different way um, than they than they usually did. And the and the other thing I want to bring no, I'll, I'll do my short questions. Six questions. The other thing I want to say about England, this isn't a question. This is just me thinking. Why doesn't everyone just shield? Um, when anyone box kicks, why are, is everyone not just blocking the chasers? Like England is doing it so much. Why doesn't everyone do it? We, everyone does do it. <laughs> no one does it as much as England. But they wear white jerseys, so it stands out more. But Ireland do it. Like. Ireland did it against England. Maybe nobody does it as well as England. Um, the reason Eddie Jones has to do it now is because he like finished fifth in last year at Six Nations. He can't afford to have another shit next Six Nations in a row. Like he's coming from like a team massively underperforming. England should always be either first or second in the Six Nations. You know they have huge player numbers, loads of money, loads of money to throw at coaches, like a savage amount of money. And they have really good players. So, like, to finish fifth in the Six Nations, like, he's lucky he didn't get the sack. Yeah, only that his, uh, his severance payment would probably be so much and the RFU don't have any money. Um, it's probably the main reason that he didn't get the sack. I think in, in terms of blocking, it's one of the features of the higher up you go. It's not just that the better defences are. It's like that the players are smarter... They run better interference lines. Like if they're covering back, it's... So say you talk about Rob Kearney passing to Chris Farrell and you go, oh, the pass was on there. And like The likelihood is, well, maybe in this option, Farrell should have caught it. But oftentimes, the pass isn't on because yes. the guys who are defending, they know it's going to go to him. They, yeah. they, they can read it. They sort of know that he only has... Like if the guy looks like he's only got one place to pass... You get in the passing lane. You get in the passing. So you can't even knock it on. You get in the passing lane, and that's why the ability to distribute the ball and to make it disguise your intentions or to, to present multiple options is one of the sort of the distinguishing factors. To between look bored like Jason or like Stockdale. Like is, Stockdale just looks sometimes like, oh, I'm not interested until I'm about to rip you too. Um, but. And there's other good examples of uh, people pretending to be like, like some of the French players <laughs> pretending that they're out there to actually play uh, their positions. But look, why why do they unveil it now? I don't know. I think it it poses questions to teams about how many they want to play in the backfield and how are England going to react to that. So if you played three in the backfield, all of whom could feel the ball and could counterattack, what happens? Do you, so. If, if you're England, do you play the same tactics against New Zealand? Particularly knowing that New Zealand can drop, like New Zealand can drop as many as they want into the backfield. Like they can have one, two, three. At what stage then are England able to outflank them? Yeah, and you know they can drop Kieran Reid into the backfield if they're looking for sides. 
Yeah. You know, so, so you can pass kick with the best. Do, do you want to give the All Blacks an opportunity to counterattack against you? Because, you know, what's become received wisdom over the last seven to eight years is that New Zealand are most dangerous off uh, turnover ball. They're most dangerous uh, when, when counterattacking. So this is, this is kind of the flaw in England are going to win the World Cups. But it's, it's not guaranteed that they're going to do it. It's just if they force three or four guys into the backfield to cover all those kicking options, they're able to run through you. They're able to skin you on the outside because their wingers are really quick. So Jones has, and this is maybe the thing with the double bluff, Jones has created that space in the front line mm. by doing all this kicking in the Six Nations. Well, the good news is we can only play them in the final of the World Cup or the semi-final if we beat New Zealand in the quarters because England are winning their group against France and Argentina. Yeah, well, you were particularly unimpressed with France. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty straightforward to say. They were, like, calamitously open at the back. I, <laughs> I think it's funny, there's certain players who stick out to me, and it, it, maybe because I read off a lot of their names in a bad French accent when we were talking about I didn't know how many of, the, many of the people in the squad, but Felix Lambie is like a skinny, red-headed second row who looks like he's from the middle of the 80s, and he's really visible, maybe it's because he's a redhead. He's really trying, but like he's part of a pack that goes backwards the He looks time. like Ron Weasley's tall French cousin, or one of Ron Weasley's <laughs> seven brothers who's off at the Dragon Eggs playing rugby for France. And like, geez, he's very gamey. I think, <clears throat> and look, this isn't our thought. Um, the assumption in Ireland is that should Joe Schmidt come back to coaching, it will be somewhere with the All Blacks. And the more fruitful place for him to come back would be as French national coach. Yeah. The more imp- the more easy improvement there would be to re- to reflect very quickly would mm. be as a national coach of France. You know, the France have refused to, you know, at club level, they've, they've hired New Zealand coaches, South African coaches, um, Irish coaches. But at uh, test level, they've refused to they refuse to sort of take advantage of any of the uh, New Zealand intellectual property. I remember was that phrase was first mentioned with regards to Wayne Smith, that he holds a huge amount of intellectual property. When it, when it was it was rumored that England were going to try and pick him up uh, after they fired Lancaster, and that New Zealand didn't want to let him go. And that phrase, I thought it was a bit corporate at the time, but it's the right phrase. Like, and France refuse at test level to to avail of that. There are, are New Zealand coaches like Vern Cotter. He Vern Cotter is, was key, a key figure in turning Scotland around. The key figure in turning Scotland around. And like Vern Cotter would be, Jesus, he'd be a much better coach than Jack Brunel. Well, look, we'll tie it up here, but I'll say this. They might change their mind after this Six Nations, or they might change their mind when on the second day of the Rugby World Cup, they're staring down elimination because they play Argentina first up in their group, and then they have to play England a couple of weeks later. And they're not getting out of that group, if you ask me. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't look like it, yeah. And they're hosting the next World Cup. So, aren't they? Yeah, we. Yeah. Um, 
So, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't win the World Cup. <laughs>